Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, professor of strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. We're going to head back in time a bit to look at a couple of classical Greek texts and authors, Uh, but if you're hoping for a thorough discussion of Thucydides and his work, The History of the Peloponnesian War, uh, you're just going to have to wait, although we do a fair bit of talking today uh, about Thucydides and that work as well. We're actually going to be looking more closely at Herodotus and his work on the Greco-Persian Wars and Xenophon and his work Anabasis. So I'm joined today by Dr. Rob Farley, who's a political scientist by day and a reader of classical texts by night. Uh, Rob is a senior lecturer at the Patterson School at the University of Kentucky and a visiting professor this year at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, But before we begin, I'm going to give us one um, disclaimer, which is that neither Rob nor I is a classicist. Uh, I'm a military historian by training, and Rob, again, is a political scientist. Uh, So we read the classics as people who teach them and as people who are interested in them, um, but not students of, say, ancient Greek world. Uh, And with that, thanks for joining us here at the War Room, Rob. Thank you for having me. And I I want to uh, emphasize that, uh, (laughs) you know, neither of us have the relationship with these texts that classicists might. But what the relationship we do have um, is people who, you know, use Thucydides in a um, uh, instructional fashion for all sorts of purposes and sort of are wondering maybe why Herodotus and Xenophon have been pushed to the side. And because certainly they're writing about Wars, right. um, and I think that's uh, that's an important sort of starting point. But let's go and think about sort of who they are and what their uh, context is. Um, so Xenophon and Herodotus, uh, what's their what's their story? Well, so Her- uh, Herodotus uh, uh, wrote uh, is is best known for his history of the the Persian Wars of the first Persian Wars, um, and he uh, was around forty or fifty years older than Thucydides, although he was around at the beginning because he alludes to the um, the uh, Peloponnesian War, mm-hmm. um, and so he was around and so he was aware of that war and it sort of includes it at the very uh, end. Um, but most of what we know of um, the battles of Thermopylae and Plataea and the rise of the Persian Empire um, and uh, the uh, great campaign of Xerxes to uh, attempt to conquer right. Greece comes from Herodotus. Um, sort of, he's our, he's our chronicler of that. Um, and people assign him this name, the father of history, even though his, I think we'll talk a little bit about this, his methods are questionable. Um, Xenophon, uh, he's much closer temporally to Thucydides, and of course, um, he very famously, he finished uh, the history of the Peloponnesian mm-hmm. War, which is called Hellenica, um, uh, where Thucydides had left off. Because um, remember, Thucydides like stops almost like in the yeah. middle of, yeah, really in the middle of a sentence, so it doesn't finish uh, the the war. Right. And so Xenophon runs in the same circles in Athens as Socrates and Alcibiades. Um, he is a soldier, uh, and he eventually is one of the leaders in a mercenary expedition that happens right after the end of the uh, Peloponnesian War, um, where he's part of this expedition that includes Athenians and Corinthians and Spartans. Basically, 
I think, a phenomenon we're very familiar with, all this sort of warrior detritus at the end of mm-hmm. like a major war. Well, let's go and try to conquer Persia. Um, and uh, it doesn't quite work out, but uh, he gives us an excellent account of how this army of Greeks flees Persia uh, in the years right after the end of the war. Okay. So we have, in some ways, sort of bookends to the history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, the Persian Wars obviously set up uh, the the state of, of play um, between Athens and Sparta in some ways. And then um, with Xenophon, we have the, the aftermath of that and again facing the facing the Persians. So with with understanding that, um, and you alluded to this earlier, Herodotus is in the historical profession sort of called the father of history. Um, what is it that gives him this distinction and uh, how does that affect sort of how we read his work now? Um, I mean, well, I think what, what gives him the distinction is that, I mean, he's he's just one of the earliest full texts that we have that has survived, right? And so, uh, you know, in the Western canon. So just pure survival bias in some ways. I think it's a huge part of it, right? That's a huge part of it. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, and I think we might be getting a little bit ahead, but um, Herodotus's method to differs so significantly from Thucydides' method. Um, Herodotus' method is almost literally, I heard this stuff and I'm going to tell you. I don't know if it's true, but it might be true. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he'll even give us three different stories of the same event. Um, And sometimes he'll say, I know the true story, but I'm not even going to tell you. Um, (laughs) And, you know, in that sense, um, you know, he is this father of history, but he's not he doesn't have the same sort of historical professionalism that sort of oozes from Thucydides. Right? Where Thucydides is, is writing down a story, a coherent narrative, with a pretty clear sort of editorial point of view, if not an argumentative one. Right. And people talk about whether there's an argument, right? But whereas, whereas his, you know, uh, Herodotus will be start talking about the campaign of Xerxes, and then he'll wander off into this discussion of Ethiopia for... You know, pages and pages and pages without any coherent reason why he want why he's talking about Ethiopia mm-hmm. right now, and you know, talk about how the Ethiopians are all two hundred years old and and all of this other stuff that sort of is is flatly and obviously not true, and so it's really hard to sort of figure out where the stuff that makes sense begins and where the stuff that doesn't ends, um, which does make him difficult from an instruct- instructional sure. viewpoint for how sort of our modern gaze wants to be able to take a history as a history. And and to get something true right. from it. Right. Um, and so what about what about Xenophon? Where does Xenophon fit into this um, sort of trio of Greek authors? I mean, Xenophon, Xenophon is even more of a soldier than Thucydides is. Um, and I would say that sort of the way he describes battles um, is, is even more detail-oriented and is really, in a lot of ways, just absolutely crackling. So um, I've seen, I've seen uh, Anabasis described as just an adventure story, right? Fundamentally, this is, this is an adventure. It's like my, t- my vacation in Persia with 10,000 of my mm-hmm. friends where we loot and burn and pillage our way out of the empire. Um, and it has just sort of, uh, Thucydides can be a struggle. And I think somebody on Twitter once said, it's so obvious that this man is having no fun at all. But <laughs> uh, there's no one who could have less fun than Thucydides. Xenophon is having fun. Herodotus is having fun um, in their accounts. Um, but 
uh, his is much more of this sort of military-centric, and then we got here, and people were throwing rocks at us, and we somehow survived even that, and then we saw the sea. And so there's this glorious aspect to it um, that Thucydides often will sort of intentionally avoid talking about. Right, and if I'm recalling, sort of Anabasis doesn't do the large sort of political context and the explanation of causation that we've come, I think, to associate so clearly with Thucydides in a theoretical sense. Right. There's not grand theory in, um, in, in Anabasis, right? Um, but there's a lot of detail, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. detail to how uh, sort of a, an ancient army functioned. Um, there's a lot of detail as to um, even sort of the strategic approaches that the Persians took and the Greeks took. Um, uh, and, but yeah, there's not this, there's never this moment, I think, in either Herodotus or in um, Xenophon, where they say, I am going to explain the world, right? This is my theory of the world. I'm going to give it to you right now, and then I'm going to explain how it explains the Peloponnesian War, right? So there's never this moment of the, uh, you know, the rise of Athens uh, created fear in Sparta and blah, 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 right? And it's, you know, what's interesting to me, having sort of just in re-engaged with Herodotus, having read Xenophon for the first time and re-engaged with Thucydides, is this question of like, why is it that Thucydides has come to dominate? Mm-hmm. Because that hasn't always been the way, right? I mean, in, in the past, both Xenophon and Herodotus um, have sort of been, have, had, have been not just part of the pantheon, they have been ahead of Thucydides right. in the pantheon. But and now, in, I, certainly in professional military education, Thucydides holds um, sort of primacy of place in, in many curricula, um, even in military history sort of graduate training, reading the history of the Peloponnesian Wars is almost a rite of passage, just like reading Samuel Huntington, The Soldier in the State, or reading Clausewitz, right? These are things that one simply must do. Right. And I mean, you and I come from different, because you're, you're a historian. I'm a historian. Right? And I'm a political scientist, but Thucydides occupies the same, um, the same mm-hmm. position within uh, the international relations discipline, right? That sort of you have to have read Thucydides in order to be able to understand, which is not to say everybody reads it, right? But um, you have to understand Thucydides' place within the pantheon of inter- international relations professionals because they all talk about it, right? right? Waltz and Morgenthau and all these people talk about Thucydides. And even the ones who want to engage and disagree have to have their Thucydides. And it's like Xenophon. Herodotus is sort of at the edge of that conversation, okay. and Xenophon is almost absent from the political science conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, is sort of weird given the role he plays with Socrates and others, that he's actually part of the political theory conversation. So when we think about those those three, um, what is it that we might take from them if we were to maybe add them back in? Maybe, maybe, I don't, maybe as part of the canon of what we teach, but just to broaden out our understanding of classical Greek texts on war. Right. So you're right now at the War College, and I don't know how it's done at other War Colleges, but we teach three three days on Thucydides, right? So, I mean, and he's, he, this, he, other than perhaps Clausewitz, he, he's sort of the guy that we spend the most time on. And so there'd be this question, well, what if we spent one day on Herodotus, one day on Thucydides, and one day on Xenophon? It would probably never happen, but, you know, this is what we might get, right? Um, you know, Herodotus is not a very good military historian. I mean, it's very interesting that sort of the Battle of Thermopylae is so popular um, and so well-known because he's not, a, he's not a very good account. It uh, doesn't give a very good... I guess they all died, but still, that's not the point. Um, 
He doesn't give a very good account of it at all, but what he does give a really good account of, um, I mean, it's not quite as good as the Sicilian expedition, but he gives a really good account of how Xerxes created his army, um, of how Xerxes sort of had to go and draw upon different parts of his empire um, in order to create this gigantic army that needed to cross into the Peloponnese, um, and of the logistical problems associated with that, um, with dragging this army there. He gives a really good account of coalition warfare and coalition campaign planning mm-hmm. on the part of the Peloponnesians, right? So um, really good discussions about how the Spartans and Athenians are balancing um, their own interests to come up with what in the end is a pretty compelling strategy, you know, and, and he points out, you know, several times that these many of these states that are waging war against the Persians are literally at war with one another while they're waging war against the Persians, but it's still um, this very good and a very rigorous account of um, sort of how all these countries are coming together in order to sort of focus on which one does which thing the best and, um, you know, develop, uh, you know, conversations about strategy. Should we defend at the hot gates? Should we defend at the Isthmus of Corinth, right? How should we think about, you know, the survival of Athens, um, which in the end is not, is completely destroyed by the Persians. Um, uh and so there's a there's a really good account of sort of all that campaign planning and how these sets of battles um, work together. That's that's almost rises to the level of being operational, right? Of operational level strategy, which mm-hmm. we're not supposed to see for another two thousand years. Right. Um, but both the Persians and the Greeks, in the way that Herodotus talks about it, are approaching this from you know sequencing out battles and then you know changing their strategy based on how the previous sequence. Right. Of they are thinking goes. in sort of these operational terms about right. linking, linking engagements together right. Uh, right. to right. achieve right. strategic objectives, which is how we define right like, fundamentally the operational level. Right, and 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 strangely, I mean, it's just something that you you don't get a lot of in Thucydides. Yeah, I mean, what you've what you've said and what you've highlighted really are some gaps that we have in Thucydides. We obviously have. Lots of questions and writing in Thucydides about um, alliances, about sort of shifting coalitions and things like that. But we don't we don't always have um, a, a good sense of how they work in in practice, um, and we and we don't get very much about the organization of armies right. in in particular as well. Um, so, what about Xenophon then? So, uh, I mean, Xenophon is just fun, but um, Xenophon is, is even more of a soldier's soldier than Thucydides is. I mean, you you know from reading Thucydides and Herodotus that one of them knows what a battlefield looks like and the other one doesn't really. Mm-hmm. Um, Xenophon has an eye for detail on the battlefield um, that exceeds even, uh, even Thucydides. And he gives us an understanding um, of how these armies fight and of how these armies think um, and uh, of how they approach uh, sort of politics within the organization. Um, that Thucydides, I mean, Thucydides does not talk about ar- armies qua armies, right? His, his focus is on states. Right. Xenophon is talking about sort of the military organization and how this military organization is functioning and the relationships that the people within the organization have. So we get this great sort of account of um, ancient combined arms warfare where, you know, the, the Greek heavy infantry is essentially... Um, invulnerable to anything the Persians can do. Um, but it can't survive without these other arms. And so the Greeks figure out, well, it's, it's much easier to turn a um, uh, you know, heavy infantryman into a light infantryman 
or a cavalryman than it is the other way around. Sure. And so they essentially create from their own phalanx um, the the support arms that they need to be able to push through. Um, we get a really good sense of. Uh, sort of, you know, how they respond to political overtures, how they maintain morale, how they um, just sort of really hold uh, the organization together and keep it uh, keep it surviving um, as a unit. And, and what's really a pretty big army, it's even a pretty big army for, uh, by the standards of the Peloponnesian War, this uh, gigantic okay. group of mercenaries. Yeah, so I think one of the other reasons that people love teaching Thucydides is not only the emphasis on states and on um, the sort of theoretical he could because he he theorizes uh, whether or not that and he he explicitly theorizes at moments but people also um, it's a it's a leadership text right and there are so many uh, sort of characters in there um, and good leaders and bad um, sort of archetypes all over are there other sort of fields or other places we could look in Her- in Herodotus or in Xenophon um, to, to draw on some of these larger questions for military leaders? Well, I certainly think there, there there's not so much, I think, that's useful from a leadership perspective in um, Herodotus, um, but there's lots in Xenophon, right? I mean, Xenophon is one of the leaders of this organization, and he's struggling with other leaders within, he, and he gives a really detailed account across the entire war, um, or the entire escape, of the arguments that go back and forth in, in what is really, in some sense, a very democratic group of soldiers, right? Um, but they still have sort of particular natural leaders, and these natural leaders fight things fight things out. Sure. And so there's positive and negative leadership examples. Um, and so that, that I think, um, you know, there's a ton, there's a ton of stuff uh, about leadership in, in Xenophon, but that, that there's not so much in Herodotus. Another thing that Herodotus offers um, that is almost entirely absent, as you know, from Thucydides, is <coughs> Herodotus uh, acknowledges that women exist. It's true. And talks about what they do at different times in history, um, uh, which is a, a nice corrective to Thucydides, who you would imagine that there is no such thing as women except for people who get butchered. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, uh, maybe is the image that we have in some ways of, of Sparta, even though we know right, right. Spartan mothers have a have this sort of outsized place in uh, in historical imagination, perhaps. Is it possible for people to read Herodotus and Xenophon sort of excerpted, or do you have to read the whole things? No, I think I think that um, I think both of them work excerpted. Uh, I mean, I think you need good uh, edited volumes. You know, there's a lot in Herodotus that you're just not going to care about, mm-hmm. right? Because he just make uh, you know the whole the aforementioned. Somebody said something. I'm going to write it down. Um, a lot of that can be excerpted, and you don't have to worry that. So much I think about I mean, it. if Herodotus to me is is someone that you you sort of need a guide through in some ways to, to say what to what to focus on, what to skip, which is what we do with Thucydides mm-hmm. as well. When we, I think that's true for almost any classical text. Right. Um, I teach we teach the Iliad in another in another class, and we say the same thing. Right. When you get to the catalogs. Right. Just keep keep moving. Just like the Bible, right? Yeah. The begats, the begats, um, the begats. Um, Anabasis is a little bit shorter, and it holds together more as a narrative. But, I mean, it's really the third and fourth books. So the third and fourth books are... Um, and, you know, the other thing that's attractive about the Anabasis is, you know, these are uh, this is a group of soldiers who just got done with 30 years of fighting each other and mm-hmm. decided that 
you know, they had nothing better to do but to go and wage another war against the Persians. And there's a lot of discussion of that, about sort of what it meant to be a demobilized soldier, and but to have nothing else in your life to do except to go and do more soldiering. To feel like this is the only thing that's possible, only right. thing that's available, um, right. and the only thing that's maybe fulfilling right. and adventurous. Uh, yeah, and right. That sort of mirrors what we, what we hear a lot, uh, I think now from veterans who are returning home who really struggle to, f- to find uh, sort of fulfilling work right. uh, after, after war because war is intense, combat is intense. Um, and, you, and you get a lot of that from Xenophon especially because he was on the losing right. side. Um, and, you know, that he was on the losing side is something that he talks about a lot, um, uh, you know, in his account. But, but, yeah, it's easy to excerpt um, really the third and fourth books, which is sort of after the Greeks have been marooned in the middle of the Persian Empire until they make it to the sea, um, are just sort of really crackling adventure writing. I mean, it's really fantastic, and, and you get a lot of the sense of, um, of what you, is really a value from the third and fourth. There are seven books altogether, and so the third and fourth is not, yeah. is not too onerous. Great. It would be, I think, really interesting to see how um, our understanding of the classical world might change if we expanded... Uh, the the sources that we that we read, uh, I think that's that's going to be true for almost any period in history. When you start to um, come up with a more complex view of things, and again more perspectives, more points of view, um, it can it can change. I think how you how you view the fundamental truths that right. are revealed in in canonical texts, right. uh, especially. So, um, thanks today for giving us I think good reason to go back and revisit. Uh, or read for the first time uh, classical texts other than Thucydides. Uh, although I think we should still right. keep read. Right. Let's keep reading Thucydides. Let's keep that. Well, uh, and uh, I mean, if I could offer one other thing, um, all of these books, all three of these books that we're talking about today, um, the original p- way that people consumed them was not to read them. But I mean, all of these authors, you know, fundamentally uh, were operated in an oral tradition, um, and so each of Herodotus, Thucydides, and Xenophon um, published their work in the first time by reading it publicly. Um, and so, if you're not the sort of person who really wants to sit down with a really heavy book upon Thucydides, um, then put them on put them on Audible, right? Put them on LibriVox or something else, um, because all of these are available. It turns out they're in the public domain. Um, and they're very old. They are very old. <laughs> they're all available, and they're fun to listen to. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think it's a fantastic um, way to read texts that can be really difficult at, at first, especially with right unpronounceable names and things that you're not uh, just right. unfamiliar with. Um, Alcibiades. D- depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thucydides, Thucydides, or there's all right. sorts of uh, all sorts of debates. We'll leave that to the actual right, classicists right, right. Uh, to tell us all the all the ways that we're saying things incorrectly. Um, yeah, so go listen, go listen to a, a text. Uh, you can listen and read along at the same time if you get the reading speed right. right. Uh, that's one of that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, but I think again, go read some more stuff and don't limit your reading uh, to the. 80 or 90 pages that you see in a PME syllabus. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.